Hey, we do want to say happy Mother's Day to all of you, uh, whether you're a biological mother or not, whether you function like a mother as a mentoring relationship, whatever your situation may be, uh, happy Mother's Day today. Love, love on your moms. Give them a call. Send them a gift. Do something. Nobody in this world would exist without a mom. Do you guys know that? So uh, it's an important day to celebrate moms. Uh, let's pray. Father, we need your insight this morning. We need your wisdom, Father. We need your conviction of your Holy Spirit, Father. We've been called to an impossible task, Father, to be your people, to be your church, to love you, to love others, Father, and we can only do that by the strength of you. And so, God, we pray that you would instill within us your spirit, Father, in greater capacity this morning. We would allow it to live more fervently, Father, and flourish through our hands and our feet, Father, in the way we live about our lives. Father, give us insight into your word this morning. Open our hearts and our ears to understand it. And at this end of this, Father, may you be glorified and may we be empowered to be your church. Amen. If you have your Bibles open, I would encourage you, or if you brought them with you this morning, I would encourage you to take them out to the book of Hebrews. We are continuing on with our series called Heads of Lettuce. There are five uh, phrases in Hebrews chapter 10 uh, that begin with the two words, let us. And so we're trying to figure out what it means to have a let us mentality. A head of lettuce, if you will. And today's lettuce comes in verse 25, and it says this. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Now this is surprisingly a very hard conversation. A very hard topic to digest. Because... The difficulty that we run up against in our post-Christian culture, like the one we're living in in this northeast part of America, is that gathering together with other believers is fairly low on the priority list. Doing this thing on Sunday morning, it's, it's actually pretty low on the priority list. Because going to church is just simply one option among the many. You guys ever felt this tension before on a Sunday morning? Man, going to church is just one option among the many. Really, anything and everything takes precedence over gathering here on Sunday mornings. Because really, in our Protestant tradition, we don't hold that taking a wafer and dipping it in juice and putting it upon our tongue is necessary for our salvation. And so we don't demand church attendance. I really encourage you. We don't demand you to be here. I'm not going to tell you that you're not saved if you choose not to come here on Sunday mornings. We don't hold that over you. What I encourage you is to come and worship God and to experience his great love and and to be changed by it and to become more genuinely human. But for a lot of people, that just doesn't seem to be enough. The post-Christian culture really doesn't help us in a lot of ways because, you know, three weeks ago, for instance, my son's baseball team had pictures at 10 a.m. on Sunday morning. The only reason he was actually involved in that picture is because it was the morning of the fire, And so he would happen to be there, ironically. But he would not have chosen to be in his, or we would not have chosen for him, in other words, chosen for him to be in his baseball picture because it conflicted with our Sunday morning experience of worship. And I'm also the pastor of the church, and so he kind of needs to be here. (laughs) Half of Ethan's baseball team plays on Travel League, and guess what? They have games every Saturday morning and every Sunday morning. And so even if I wanted to invite their families to church, they'd say, sorry, they're higher priorities in my life. My son, my six-year-old son's baseball game. 
That just so happens to be at 11 o'clock on Sunday, so we can't make a 10 o'clock church service. I was talking to the coaches yesterday about Ethan playing fall ball, because he loves baseball. Oh, but guess when the games are? Sunday morning, so I guess he's not playing fall ball, and all of a sudden, all of the kids who are going to be playing baseball year-round are going to develop their skills more than he is, and according to society, he is now crippled as a baseball player because he cannot play ball all year-round because we have chosen to make church a priority. How many of you drove in past the Oxford Valley Golf Club and saw tons of people golfing this morning? Chosen to go play golf rather than come to a church service. We're coming upon a season where sitting on the beach will take priority over the community of believers. Or a Phillies game at noon will take priority, or a 1 o'clock Eagles game is going to take priority over a 10 a.m. church service for some odd reason. You know, you know who I'm talking about. For a lot of people who work hard throughout the week, getting up for a 10 o'clock service, trying to get the kids out the door and ready just seems exhausting. And so it's like, well, I guess I'm just going to lie around and be lazy because that is more of a priority in my life. And really, why should we make this thing on Sunday morning a priority when there are televised preachers to listen to and worship CDs to listen to in your car? Right? Why should it be a priority when there are Christian radio stations constantly blaring Christian music at us? Really, we can get everything that we get here. We can get the worship music. We can get preaching through podcasts. We can get everything we want on our own time. So why make this a priority? Because really, if the church is just something that we consume, we come to and we sing some songs and we listen to a message and we walk away having consumed a product, then it might be appropriate just to listen to it on your own time, just to do it whenever you want. And for 1,700 years, that is kind of what the church has struggled through and suffered through. Is this tension of really, is this Sunday morning thing just something I consume, or is it something that can actually change my life? Is it just something to attend and walk away from, or is it something that can actually change my mind and change my heart and make me more human? Now, you might be thinking, Ross, you're preaching to the choir. We're the ones who are sitting in the seats. We're the ones who showed up. We're the ones who decided to get our kids out of the door and go through the energy and the time it took to, to, to get in our car and rally the kids and the family and get here on Sunday morning. We're the ones who chose not to go golfing this morning. We're the ones who chose to say, sorry, son and daughter, we're not going to go to your baseball game. We're going to go to church. Right? We're the ones who chose to do that. You're the ones who are here, so who am I preaching to? I thank you for being here, by the way. It was a choice that you made. I, I realize that. You, you chose to, to make this your priority, and every single day we are making choices about our prioritization in our life. And you've chosen this morning to say, church, coming and hearing the word of God and coming and worshiping among the community of believers, that is my priority this morning. Thank you for doing that. You know, I was meeting with a friend this past week who is also a pastor of a local church, and he said that they have 490 people on their membership rolls, but they have a church attendance weekly of 300 people. I'm like, man, that's, that's incredible. 490 people call this church your home, and only three people, uh, 300 people ever show up? But then I got to thinking, I was like, man, it's, it's exactly the same at Restoration Church. You know, there are 190 seats in this auditorium, and if every single person who called Restoration Church their home decided that they were going to all show up on the same Sunday, there would be no way we'd fit them all in here. 
And, and not only that, but our children's classrooms, there's no way we'd be able to cram all of the kids that all of these people would bring along with them on any given Sunday morning. And so maybe you're thinking, Mom, it's, I guess it's a blessing. I guess it's a blessing that we don't show up to church. But my friends, I would much rather figure out that problem. And we're going to figure out that problem this fall, by the way, when we go to two services. Because it's crowded in here. And there are a lot of people who aren't here this morning. I would much rather figure out that problem and have you coming here on Sunday morning as gathering with the body of believers, learning what it means to be human, learning what it means to love God and to pour that love upon the world, learning to be a person on mission and a person called to a purpose. I would much rather deal with that problem than have you out there in the world being influenced by something else. I was talking with another friend who coaches a softball team in the church league we're a part of. We were discussing what regular attender meant, because in our league you have to have, you can only have five non-attenders on your softball team, and that's really to, uh, to say that, you know, you can't stack your team with all these, you know, professional softball players. They have to actually be church members to be on the softball team, and that limits, uh, no, no offense, Restoration Church, that, that means we're not as good as we could be, really, that's what it means. Because we can't hire the professionals to come in and say, this is our church softball team. And he was saying, well, for our team and for our church, we say that regular attender, it means once a month. I'm like, regular attender of a church is once a month? I, I mean, I guess that's regular if you say that uh, regularity means pattern. But if you say that, I guess the people who attend on Christmas and Easter only are really regular attenders of a church, aren't they? I mean, what does regular attending mean? And that was the conversation that we eventually went into. You know, I'm not trying to guilt anybody to come in to church. I'm not trying to guilt you to be here every single Sunday morning. I'm not trying to puff my ego up by having a large crowd listen to me babble on Sunday mornings. I really hope that our gatherings do two things. I hope that the purpose of our gatherings do two things. And I believe that these two things are consistent with what God had envisioned the church to do and what God had envisioned the church to be. The first thing is that I hope that our church gatherings raise up an army and that we have this corporate purpose of being a united front against the world. And second, I hope that they inspire you, as we discussed last week, to be the most genuinely human that you can possibly be. And that as you walk away from this place every single Sunday, that you are more genuinely human than you were prior to that. And I want to unpack these two a little bit this morning. To raise up an army. You know, I'm not trying to be overdramatic, but I think that if, for anybody who, who knows the history of Restoration Church, from the very fo- first phone call that Emily and I ever had with Grace Point up in Newtown, our sister church, who planted us, from the first phone call that Emily and I ever had, to this whole fire incident and being here on Sunday morning, and there's no way that you can deny that we are in a war. There's no way that you can deny that we are in a battle and there is someone, something, some power that is against us and what we are hoping to accomplish here at Restoration Church. There's no way that you can deny that. Because there's a war being raged in the heavens and it impacts in all sorts of mysterious ways what happens on the earth. And church bodies who th- strive to be faithful towards God's calling are going to be targeted. And we've been targeted, my friends. We are in a war, and we together make up a community of fighters. 
We together make up a community of fighters all playing various roles of varying expertise and abilities to accomplish one singular purpose. We are fighters accomplishing one single purpose. And my conviction for Restoration Church, and quite frankly my conviction for any church, is that if we do not have as our purpose God's purpose and his vision for what the church was supposed to be, if our vision for Restoration Church is not God's vision for what the church was meant to be, then we are doing a disservice to what God had hoped his church would accomplish. And here is God's vision for his world. Here is what he had hoped his people committed to his name would accomplish in the world. It comes out of Isaiah, and there are several other passages I could turn to. But Isaiah 11, this has become one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. He says this, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father in the Old Testament. And the, the, the root that comes up is the Messiah. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Messiah, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see with his, uh, by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. He gives this beautiful picture of what this restored creation, what this restored world is going to look like. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. And they will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountain. And why? Let's read this together. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This beautiful, incredible vision of God's restored earth that he has given to Isaiah where there is peace and there is harmony and there is restoration. And this is his intended creation. This is his restorative work. And he describes it in the way that the earth will be covered with the knowledge of God just as the sea is covered with water. Has anyone ever wondered why our mission statement, as I stated earlier, is to know God and to make him known? Has everybody ever wondered that? It is because we have been given a responsibility as the people of God to lead the world in the direction of restoration. That us being planted here in Levittown have a responsibility as the people of God to lead Levittown in the direction of restoration. In the direction of wholeness, in the direction of peace, in the direction of God's love making manifest itself in households, we have been given a responsibility to lead our region, to lead our world in the direction of restoration. And if this mission and purpose of the church is solely you as an individual, really if the purpose and the mission of the church is really just you as an individual, growing in your own personal spirituality, growing in your own morality, if that's really all we're about is puffing you up as people, we don't have any corporate identity, then it's fine for you just to pop in from time to time. It's fine for you just to show up once a month, to feel good about yourself, to walk away, never actually having connected with anyone here, never actually involved yourself in any greater mission. It's fine for you to do that. 
And for the past 25 years, the postmodern mentality has shaped the culture of the church to the point where personal preference, personal preference and an individualistic Christianity have become the norm. And so what do people do? If they don't like the way that the music sounds at a church, they go to somewhere else. And they come to a church body and they don't like the, they don't like the, uh, the, the person sitting across the aisle because they kind of smell weird, they go somewhere else. And they make all these personalized, individualistic preferences to say, well, this church really doesn't feel right to me, and so I'm just going to go somewhere else. Because if a church is really just about one weekly experience and nothing more, you coming to this place, consuming a product, leaving, if that's really all church was meant to be, then, then find something that's going to pat your back. And then go find a community of people that's just going to pat you on the back and say, good job, well done. Way to go in your own growth, in your own spiritual preference, in your own spiritual morality. Don't get me wrong, I hope that you grow individually. I hope that you grow as a person and that your morality is improved and better because of your time here. But if that's really all it's about, if there is no corporate unity, if we're not doing this thing together, then we are doing a disservice to God's mission for the church. You see, the church has tried to become all things to all people instead of one thing to one God. For the past 25 years through post-modernity, the church has tried to become all things to all people rather than one thing to one God. And in the process, it has become very little to very few. And that makes me sad. It really does. And that makes me concerned and it makes me angry in a lot of ways. You see, there's a reason that the church is dying in America. There's a reason that the church died in Europe. And when the church stops being what the church was meant to be, then death of the church is going to be the natural result. See, according to Acts, the people of Jesus are to be his witness throughout the world. We have a responsibility to be his witness throughout the world. The reason that the first church came together was to remember Christ's resurrection, and that's why we meet on Sundays, by the way, because he rose from the dead on Sundays. We are called to testify to his redemptive and transformative power and then to proclaim it to the world. We are the witnesses of what God is doing in the world. And somehow, through the church and its gatherings, the people of God should learn their mission. That we together, Restoration Church, coming, meeting together corporately on Sunday morning, should learn our mission. But then also to be inspired to enact that mission out in our world. And to make known what God has already accomplished through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ, to make that known as we testify it to our world. And the reason they came regularly to do this was because they were more effective in accomplishing this goal together than they were individually. Paul really says the, first, the same thing in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, that the church, he uses this analogy, that the church is the body of Christ. Have you ever thought how a body works? Anybody ever thought about that, how a body works? You know, you, you, we, we go around and we, we wiggle our fingers and we stomp our feet and we blink our eyes and we do all these things with our bodies. And has everybody ever actually thought about how that actually takes place? You see, my, my hands don't have autonomy. My eyes don't have autonomy. My feet don't have autonomy. None of my parts of my body have autonomy. There may be random twitches from here to there. I may shiver every, every now and then. I might have these random acts of movement, but all intentional and meaningful movement begins in my brain. 
My brain initiates all of my movement. And so when Paul says that Christ is the head of the church, he's alluding to this idea that Christ originates its movement. That Christ originates its goal, that the will of the church is actually supplying the will of the head. And so when there is meaningful movement in the church, it is because we are doing the will of Jesus Christ. Any and all intentional and meaningful movement that is restorative is from Jesus Christ. But my brain just doesn't think of these things and all of a sudden this magical process takes place. My brain doesn't like think these things and this magic happens and all of a sudden my, my hands begin to move. There's a process that takes place. My, my brain fires off information and it transmits that information through my nervous system, which then allows and empowers my hands and my fingers and my eyes and my feet to stomp and to move. And the Holy Spirit functions as the church's nervous system. The empowering of the body to do the will of the head comes from the Holy Spirit. And that same head and that same nervous system empowers the little toe among us to let us balance and to let us stand just in the same way as it empowers the heart among us to pump its blood and to do its very important work of supplying energy and power to the body. Both are important. Both are important, both are necessary, and both find their strength and their empowerment from the same place. And when we choose to think of church as just an option among many, Maybe we do this because the real hope and the real ambition and the real goal of our hearts is our own personal satisfaction. When we choose not to get involved, when we choose not to get invested in what the local church is doing, restoration in our case in particular, it's kind of like we're cutting off our fingers. Because we need you. We need your regular attendance and your regular gathering to be the best human person you can be because we have a responsibility to lead Levittown and the surrounding region in the direction of restoration. And if you choose not to get involved, and you choose, if you choose to, to not invest, then it's like cutting off a finger. And when the whole entire church body holds this individualistic consumption-based mindset, then it's kind of like you're cutting off our legs. And we just remain stagnant. We remain still to actually accomplish anything of significance in our region. And it's the same with the war. We need the snipers and the bomb experts and the strategists and the medical experts to accomplish the task of winning the war and to accomplish the task that God has empowered them specifically to do. So so imagine for for a minute that you're in a war and the bomb expert, the the one who is is trained to, to disarm bombs, chooses to sleep in during his training sessions chooses to say, you know, I I don't really feel like going to that training session today. It's not that important. And so I'm just going to stay home. And then you come to that point in the war where you have to disarm a bomb. And you're like, hey, let's call our bomb expert. Come on over, buddy. Start disarming the bomb. What's going to happen? It's not going to go well. And and then if you, you approach that bomb and you're like, man, anybody can just disarm a bomb. It can't be that complicated. Let's get, the, let's get the surgeon over here. Maybe, maybe he can disarm the bomb. It's not going to go well. We need you, my friends, to do the role that God has called you to do. If our hope and our goal is to make God known in our region, we need you to do the work that God has called you to do. And, and, and 
maybe, maybe you're a servant. Maybe that's, your, maybe that's what, how God is wired and you just want to serve. Then serve. Then serve. Approach me and ask me, Ross, how can I serve? God has called me to serve here. What can I do? And I'll put you to work. Maybe, maybe the way God has wired you is to give. Maybe you have this gift of generosity. Well, then Paul says in Romans 12, if, if your gift is to give, then give generously. If your gift is to teach, then, then, then teach with fervor and with passion and with conviction. If your gift is to serve, then serve and do it hard and work hard as you do it. If your gift is to pray, then surround our, our people and our body and our church in prayer and our community in prayer. If your gift is to lead, then lead. We need you to do what God has called you to do in order for us to accomplish our mission of leading our region in the direction of restoration. Because that is what God has called his people, the church body, to do. Right? Right. There's also this individualistic component, though. Right? We have this corporate responsibility, and that's why we gather, because we want to inspire one another and to encourage one another to serve together to accomplish the task of bringing God's restoration to the world. But I also hope that our time together, through our time together, you become more genuinely human. And I, I began this conversation last week. I mentioned that these three verses, 24 through 26 of Hebrews 10, that they make up this one concluding thought, that each phrase lays a foundation for the following week. And so last week, you, remem- you may remember that we said that we should spur one another on towards love and towards good deeds. We began that conversation last week. And the reason we spur one another on towards love and this love making itself known through the way that we actually uh, move our bodies and the things that we do with our hands and with our feet and with our eyes. Right? L- love isn't just this thing we talked about. I read that in, in 1 John earlier this morning. Don't just love with your mouth. Love with your actions. Love with your truth. The reason that we are called to love is because love is what makes us most genuinely human. It's interesting, if you read Genesis, you'll notice that both humanity and the animals were made from the same dirt. God made the elephant, he made the human, and all of a sudden they're made from the same dirt, they receive the same breath of God. There's nothing that distinguishes this human mold from the animal mold at this point in time. Nothing that separated us from the animals. The difference is that God installed within himself his essence. God gave us as humans something unique, and it was a gift. He gave, him, he gave us his very self, his very love, his very spirit, his very essence, and he made us in his own image. We became unique. We became genuinely human. You see, we are made in the image of God, and God is love, and he had created us to run on a very particular type of fuel, and that fuel was self-sacrificial, other-oriented love, other-oriented activity. But the thing is, we don't. We, we don't run on this type of love. We run on a different type of fuel, a self-centered, self-interested, self-reigning type of fuel. And the way we go about life is a, is a stammering type of life. We function as humans, but we don't function all that well as humans. We have abandoned God's image, and we have resorted back to our animal instinct. But God in his love has created a way through his son Jesus Christ that we could once again be filled with his love. 
and allow that love then to overflow upon the world, that we could function in love as we were created to function. And so even though so many of us have participated in the, in the dying of ourselves, that we have laid that self-interested, self-reigning heart to death, for some reason, it still haunts us. Has anybody ever experienced that? That, yeah, you know, I, I'm a committed Christ follower, and yet I'm still not very good at it. Anybody with me? I can't be alone in that, can I? Okay, good. That makes me feel better. I've been dying to myself for half my life. I became a Christian when I was 16, and I'm 33, so half my life I've been dying to myself. But I'm really bad at it because this genuine love, this genuine self-sacrificial, self-other-oriented uh, love is always and only ever from God. It only and ever originates in God. It never originates in my own power and my own abilities and my own strength. It always and only ever originates in God. And if we do not constantly have in mind the transfer of our self-made authority over to God, then our default is going to win. Right this past week, I was walking through our back room in our house, and there just happened to be all these crumbs on the floor. Like, like someone had taken an entire cookie and crumpled it on the floor and just left it there. And I looked at it, and I stepped over it, and it went about my day. And I just wish that somebody in that moment would have spurred me on towards love. I just wish that somebody in that moment would have said, Ross, you know what, the, the loving thing to do in this moment would probably be to go get the broom and to sweep up the crumbs. You, you, didn't, you didn't make the mess, but the loving thing would be to go and sweep up the cookie. But I was tired and I was lazy and what won out? My self-interest, my self-reigning heart won out over the stupid cookie. And I had had a, a hard conversation with Emily that later that night because she came along and spurred me on towards love. But you know what? If you're spurred on later, <laughs> it's not the most pleasant conversation. <laughs> you know, for, <laughs> for some reason... When we're offended, the natural inclination is to offend back. And for some reason, when we're hit, the natural inclination is to hit back. And for some reason, humility and peace and kindness and love and gentleness and all these beautiful attributes of the Holy Spirit, in the face of adversity, in the face of the cookie lying on the floor, in the face of you being challenged to work hard instead of being lazy, For some reason, they're, they're hard to conjure up. I, I know that they live inside of me, but for some reason, in the face of adversity, in the face of a situation that isn't going my way, in some situation that I would rather not be in, they're really hard to conjure up. And the reason is because love, in all of its expressions, and all of its expressions take the form in patience, Peace and joy and kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are all expressions of love. But the reason that those are hard to conjure up is because love is an otherworldly ability. It does not begin in me and my own powers. It begins from God, and it is a gift given to us to be genuinely human. 
And so our responsibility at every juncture, at every cookie lying on the floor, our responsibility as people who are striving to be the most genuinely human that we can be is threefold. First, you need to pray. Because we do not have the abilities within ourselves to do it, right? The, the human default is to let the cookie lie there. It's to walk over it and let somebody else deal with the problem. That is the human default. Self-reign, self-interest. That is the human default. And so every time I approach the stupid cookie, I need to pray. And my prayer needs to be, God, fill me with yourself. Give me the strength I need in this moment, God, to love, because I know in love I am most genuinely human. And as you begin to pray and say, God, fill me with yourself, may you increase in me and may I decrease, Father. Ask one simple question, and this is a question that Emily and I talk about a lot in our household. What does love require of me? And every junction, and every cookie, and every corner, and every fork in the road, ask yourself the question, what does love require of me? And then, by God's strength, choose love. And because you laid that question in prayer, you will be spurred on by the Spirit of God to accomplish it. If I would have taken a break from my step and I would have said, God, what does love require of me? You know what I would have done? I would have got the broom. I would have cleaned it up. But I didn't. And I chose the self-interest you see, in those moments when we struggle to choose love, love is extraordinarily challenging, right? You, you need other people to spur you on towards love and to good deeds. Love is this impossible task that we have been commissioned to accomplish and commissioned to do. And so we need other people to spur us on because it's not always my first inclination to stop, to pray, to ask, and then to do. That's not always the first thing on my mind. And if Emily was in the other room, if she saw me hesitate, she would say, Ross, get the broom. She would have spurred me on to say, Ross, clean up the mess. Serve your family. Clean up the mess. But left to my own devices, I'm like, eh. And so where are you going to be inspired to do this? Because I, I, I don't know how many of you go to secular jobs every single day, but you know, the world isn't going to inspire you to love. The world's not going to spur you on to love and to good deeds. They're going to spur you on to self-interest and to self-motivation and to self-reign. They're going to say, take the easy way out. Do the thing that, that fills you up the most. Don't do the self-sacrificial servant thing. That's weak. That's foolishness. Do the thing that's going to benefit you the most and make your life better. And so when in your day full of work and stress and responsibility and commitment and, and people who are not on the same pursuits as you, as you go to work and talk with your family who don't know Jesus, right? Where in your day are you going to be spurred on and inspired to follow God and allow his love to work through you? Think for a moment why the author of Hebrews thought keeping his community together was so important. Right? They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have Twitter. They didn't have email. They didn't have a phone to dial up. The only way that they were going to spur one another on is if, is, is if they were going to come to a place and they were going to gather and they were going to talk about what it meant to love God and reflect his love to the world. That's the only place that they were going to spur one another on. If you wanted to talk to your friends and encourage them, you either wrote them a letter, which wasn't easy or cheap in their day, or you gathered with them. You, you gathered at a house and you talked about this. 
And in their day and age, there was one way community could happen, and that was to meet together. And even with the threat of constant persecution, which they were constantly up against, and, and gathering together only basically, you know, opened up the bullhorn to say, hey, Romans, we're here. This is where we are. We're, we're the Christians, and we're gathering here. Meeting together was, was a huge threat in their day. They still were challenged to do it because they needed the encouragement and they needed the, the challenge of their community to be spurred on, to be the most genuinely human people they could be, to testify to what Jesus had done, and to proclaim his love amidst the world that so desperately needed it. They needed the body of believers to be spurred on and encouraged and inspired to be loving in their world, to restore their world, to be the redemptive agents in their world. But you know, today we have all sorts of opportunities. How many of you use Facebook as a way to encourage your body rather than, say, slander your body? Right? We, we encourage one another. We, we, we put up important scriptures on Facebook or Twitter or social media, and we use that as an avenue to encourage and to spur one another on. Social media can inspire others, and, and emailing someone who is down and out, right? That can be a huge lift to someone's day. Or a phone call can lift someone out of a, of a deep funk. Just hearing someone's voice is a powerful powerful tool to lifting people up, to encouraging them, to challenging them on, to be the most genuinely human they can be. But the only place that you're going to come and you're going to experience the Lord's table, for instance, the, the, the communion and the remembrance of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done and what he has accomplished. In this place, you can learn alongside other believers and you can be inspired in a corporate place like this And you can worship together and you can sing songs that are reminding you of God's great love for you and what he has done and what he has accomplished. In this place, on a Sunday morning, you can come and you can be inspired. And this Sunday morning experience can be fuel for you to live your life in love throughout the rest of the week. And all of those things like social media, Facebook, and Twitter, those are just like filling up your gas tank as you go along. Those are just like little pushes of encouragement to keep you going and to keep you living the life that God has called you to live as a follower of himself. But if you choose to disengage, if you choose to unplug, if you choose to say Sunday morning is just not a priority, it's not that big of a deal. If you choose to, to, to say, yeah, I'm just going to scroll through my, my Facebook posts really quickly and I'm not going to care what other people have to say. I'm not going to answer the phone when that person calls me because I just know that she, she's going to tell me about how much God loves me. It just gets kind of annoying after a while. If you're just going to choose to disengage, if you're going to choose to unplug. If you think that you can just follow Christ on your own outside the regular connection and the inspiration of your community, you will fail to love. You will choose the self-interest and the self-prioritization. You will fail to love and therefore you will fail to be genuinely human. See, your personal tie to God is not the only element of your religious life that matters. It's not just about the way that you live your life. It's about the way that you can spur others on into living their life. You see, without purposeful contact with other believers, fruitful work for the kingdom, it will begin to cease. And prayer will become dry, and the world will begin to shrink. Not only your social conscience will begin to, to, to shrink, but even your social awareness will, will succumb to your own self-interest. You'll, you'll hear about things like Nepal and sex trafficking throughout the world, and you're just not going to care. 
you will quickly withdraw into a world of your own in which costless discipleship and cheap grace prevail. I was talking to a friend who, who has come to Restoration Church for, for a long time, but, but she said that she was, and essentially she admitted to being selfish and said, I'm not going to get up in the mornings. I'm tired in the mornings, and I, it's hard getting the kids out of the house, and, and so we, we haven't seen her in a long time. And she admitted to me that her, her prayer life has shrunk, and it's withered up. And she's admitted to me that the, she, she's more selfish, and she hates it about herself, but she's finding herself to choose herself far more frequently than she did when she was regularly attending church. And so I had an opportunity to challenge her and to encourage her to come back, and we, can pr- we keep praying that she'll, she'll be back so that she can be the most genuinely human person that she can possibly be. I'm going to invite the band up. We're going we're gonna to reflect on this a little bit. You know, there is uh, this day in the Old Testament called the Sabbath day. It was a Sabbath day, and uh, they were called to remember this day once a week. And they, they were called to do the Sabbath day and to come together as, as a body of people because it was in this body that they were spurred on towards being the people that God had called them to be. And so for six days of the week, you can work and you can do all your work and you can, you can uh, accomplish things. But on one day out of the week, I want you to come together and gather as a, as a body so that you can be the people that God has called you to be. And there's this one guy in the book of Numbers, chapter 32. He was found to be carrying wood on the Sabbath. He said, you know what, it's not important for me to go to the gathering. That's not as important for me to, to make the progress on my house that I need to be, right? Because there's a storm coming. Or there's an army that's going to invade our town and I need to make my house. I need to make my house ready. Or I need to light that fire because my children are hungry and if I don't have a fire, then I can't cook my food. And so I need to do all this stuff. I don't have time to gather with the community. Right? His crime was gathering wood, but his punishment was death. They, they were to take this man out for gathering wood on the Sabbath and they were to stone him to death. Because one man's mentality to say that this just isn't important began to bleed into all of the other mentalities because all these people who were gathering in their houses were like, man, you know what? <laughs> that guy's house is going to be so much better than mine. That, that, that guy's house is going to be so much more protected against the storm and the armies than mine is. Maybe I should take that extra day and work hard on it. And you know, you know what happened throughout the story of Israel in the Old Testament? That they started neglecting the Sabbath day. They started to say, it's not important. There are other things that take precedent. There are other things that are more important to get advanced, to advance in society. There are more important things in my life than gathering on the Sabbath day. They began to neglect the Sabbath day, and eventually it was because they neglected the Sabbath day that they were destroyed by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. It was because they forgot the law of God. It was because they came together, that they neglected to come together as a people to say, what does it really mean to be the people of God? They chose their own advancement over the gathering together to reflect on what it meant to be the people of God and to be inspired to be people who are loving. And so in Ezekiel 20 it says, I give them my decrees and made them known to my laws by which the person who obeys them will live. Right? The laws are really about life. I want you to be the most human that you can possibly be, but they neglected my laws. And so I gave them the Sabbaths as a sign between us so they would know that I am the Lord who made them holy. And yet the people of Israel, they rebelled against me in the wilderness. 
that did not follow my decrees. They rejected my laws by which a person who obeys them will live. And they utterly desecrated my Sabbath. Remember, the Sabbath day was the day where they were to come together to reflect on what it meant to be the people of God, and they neglected that. And they forgot what it meant to be the people of God. And so I said I would pour out my wrath on them and destroy them in the wilderness. But for the sake of my name, I did not, I, I did what I, <laughs> I did what would keep it from being profaned in the eyes of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Also with uplifted hands, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land I had given them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most beautiful of all lands. Because they rejected my laws and did not follow my decrees and desecrated my Sabbaths, for their hearts were devoted to their idols. Yet I looked on them with pity and did not destroy them or put an end to them in the wilderness. I saw, I said to their children in the wilderness, Do not follow the statutes of your parents or keep their laws or defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. I am your creator. I am the one in whose image you were made. I am the giver of life. Follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Keep my Sabbaths. Keep meeting together regularly. Keep learning what it means to be human and live that out. Be inspired to be a people directing your community and your world and what it means to be a restored community. Keep my Sabbaths holy, that they may be a sign between us. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. And so, my friends, we are called to two things, right? We are called to be inspired to our mission, to know God and to make him known. And I hope that as you come into this place, the meeting together, right, it's so important to meet together, that we are inspired to make God known in our community, but also that we are inspired by God's love. And as we reflect on his great love poured out in us, that we would be great mirrors of that love into our world. And that we, from being together, would learn what it means to be human, so that as we are more human in an animal instinct-like world, that we can show the world, too, what it means to be human. Amen? Amen.